Hello and welcome to the Consular Cast. Thanks for listening in. Today's subject is something near and dear to my heart, the college loan crisis, one of the biggest swindles in our Republic of Racketeering. And my guest is Richard Fossey, who is the author of a book called The Student Loan Catastrophe, Postcards from the Rubble, which was published just uh, in September. And he is the Paul Burden Endowed Professor of Education at the University of Louisiana, Lafayette. He received his JD from the University of Texas School of Law and his doctorate in education policy from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. His research concentrates on the student loan crisis, and much of his work is focused on student loans and the federal bankruptcy courts. He is an active blogger on the student loan crisis, and his blog can be accessed at condemnedtodebt.org. That's debt, not death. Here's the one brief ad on this podcast for a company run by David McElvaney, whose weekly commentary podcast I admire very much. By now, you've heard you need to own physical precious metals in your portfolio. Whether in your possession, in an IRA, or stored internationally, it is imperative you work with a company that advises you on and manages your gold and silver. ICA has been an industry leader since 1972. Your ICA advisor will get you set up correctly from the onset and keep you informed about when to make a move, when to add ounces, and even assist you with an exit strategy as markets change. Call 1-800-525-9556 for a free portfolio review. That's 1-800-525-9556, or go to icagoldcompany.com to request information. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Richard Fossey about the student loan crisis. I'm speaking to Richard Fossey. Where are you, Richard, exactly? Jim, I'm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay, well... First of all, most listeners will not be acquainted with your name or who you are. You're not one of those uh, highly visible celebrities out there. Tell us a little bit about who you are and how you became involved in the student loan crisis. I got interested in this when I was doing my doctoral work at Harvard. And before I had any inside knowledge about the student loan crisis, it was clear to me then as a student that people were borrowing money that they couldn't pay back. They'd really made a mistake going to graduate school and borrowing money. So based on that experience, I, I got involved in it and I began writing. And then about five years ago, I started a blog site about this. So I've been following this closely for five or six years. Have you tried any cases yourself? I haven't. I have an inactive license uh, with the state of Texas, the Texas Bar Association. But I did file an amicus brief in a case out of Kansas. I was very honored to have that opportunity. Just briefly, uh, this was a married couple who had borrowed money to get bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and they made good faith efforts to pay it back. The amount they borrowed was 77000 By the time they were in their late 40s, that debt had grown to 311000 It had quadrupled. Yeah, and we're going to talk about how that happens a little later. And I wrote the, an amicus brief for two public advocacy groups on behalf of the Murrays, and they were successful. 
Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the Murray case later. But in general, just to, to kick it off, this college loan crisis, I- indeed, the higher ed industry as a whole, if we can call it that, an, an industry, has become a monstrous racket with colleges and universities and for-profit diploma mills all feeding off a stream of debt that ends up financially crippling and disabling millions of people. I would call this uh, obvious racketeering. How could it not be called racketeering? Yeah, I agree with you. In one of your blog posts, you called higher education a criminal enterprise. <laughs> and that's, that's really true. It's most evident in the for-profit industry. But even in the public sector, the colleges are, are, are charging tuition that's overpriced. And this whole structure is just propped up by the student loan, loan industry. It's, it's, it's just a disaster. There are now about 45 million people out there who are burdened by a total of about $1.3 trillion in debt. That's a huge number. Quite a few of these feckless borrowers find themselves unable to make regular payments. The Department of Education or their fiduciaries shove them into these things called income-based repayment programs that lower their payments, but they don't even come close to covering the continuing compounding interest on the loan. So some poor schnook can be making payments for 25 years on a $70,000 loan and end up still owing $150,000 at the end of the term. Yeah. The the income-based repayment plans are basically accounting fraud. You said it just right. Almost no one who enters those plans is making a payment large enough to cover the accruing interest. So virtually all the people in these plans, and that's over 5 million people now, are going to see their loan balances go up month by month until they finish their plan 20 or 25 years from now. At that point, the unforgiven amount, which could be more than they borrowed, it's forgiven, but under uh, current tax laws, that forgiven amount is taxable income. You know, it's just a way of hiding the seriousness of this crisis. Those people are not counted as defaulters because they're in these income-based repayment programs, but they're not paying off their loan. They're swapping out a college loan debt for an IRS debt. Yeah, that, that is right. And, and this is particularly alarming to me that the General Accounting Office reported uh, uh, less than a year ago that half the people in those plans are removed from them because they don't certify their income every year, which they're required to do. That surprised me. That, that means that the people that are in the plans are not following the rules and they're getting kicked out of them. The only explanation for that that I can give is, is that they're just so demoralized, they just give up. I mean, nothing is more psychologically crippling than a huge financial problem that you can never resolve. I mean, it's bad enough to have problems that you can overcome, you know, even if it takes a long time. But to have a problem that you know you will never overcome must be just devastating. It must be. And, you know, basically, it's a a huge federal sharecropper program. People are paying a percentage of their income over the majority of their working lives and never getting out of debt. It's like they work for a coal company and uh, have to buy everything from the company store. How do you account for the fact that supposedly sentient and intelligent and educated people in the Department of Education, including their lawyers, could engineer such a cruel and unfair system? Jim, I think the people in the Department of Education, uh, wherever they are, buried in the 
in the bureaucracy, I think they know exactly what's going on. I think they have seen the numbers and they can see that this is a disaster. What they did was engineer something that would buy them time. These income-based repayment programs, uh, the enhanced ones, were introduced by the Obama administration. And the Obama administration you know, left office before the, uh, the bomb went off. But I, I think they know what's going on, and they're just hiding it. It's, it's accounting fraud. Explain to the listeners how the math works on an income-based repayment program that doesn't allow you to even cover the interest. Like, what are the numbers with that, and, and how does that final figure grow that, to, to be that large? We'll talk about the Murray case later, but that's a case in point. Basically, no, we can talk about that now. Let's talk about it now. Okay. Well, the Murrays borrowed money back in the mid-1990s. Uh, they both got bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and they borrowed a total of $77,000. And they consolidated that debt in 1996 at 9% interest. Over the years, they paid 70% of what they borrowed, 54000 But there were periods where they went into economic deferment. They were allowed to skip payments, but the interest accrued. Then at some point, they got into an income-based repayment plan, and they saw that their, their balance was growing. And so by the, by the time they filed for bankruptcy, it was 311000 It had quadrupled. Generally, this is what's happened. The enhanced programs that the Obama administration introduced, pay, that's P-A-Y-E, and repay, allow people to pay 10% of their discretionary income, that's the income above the poverty level, on their debt, no matter how much they borrow. Say 10% on your above the poverty line income, say if you're making $50,000 a year, you're paying 3500 a year, something like that. But if you've got a large debt amount, that doesn't cover the interest that's, that's occurring. And most of the people that go into these plans have large debt amounts. If, if they could pay them off in the standard 10-year period, they would do it. They're only in these programs because they're desperate. I haven't seen the, the numbers, but it, it's got to be the vast majority of people in these income-based plans are not covering the interest. Their loans are negatively amortized. Here's something that puzzles me, and in an era of supernaturally low basic interest rates, like the low Fed fund rate that's established by the Federal Reserve, you know, close to zero, where do these college loan originators get off charging seven, eight, nine percent? That's a a problem that Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, has has pointed out, and I, I do think that's a problem. If we really want to get help people dig out of this, we would reset the interest rate that's fair for the current uh, loan environment we're in. I'm not a fan of any of the political solutions on this, but uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president, proposed a 90-day moratorium on all this student loan debt to give people time to refinance at a more reasonable interest rate. That's really not a bad idea. It, It would be a massive paperwork issue. I don't know that they could get it done in, in 90 days, but that would be directly addressing the problem. Well, Richard, a lot of these loans originate from an entity called Sally May, which is one of those government-sponsored uh, enterprises. And in a, in a way, you know, if it's anything like the ones in housing, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, then they are, in effect, really wards of the uh, federal government, right? 
Yeah. So, so where do they get off charging uh, 9% interest? How is that justified if they are connected to the federal government? You know, we're in a low interest rate environment. It's not like they're trying to, like they need to make a buck, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Sally May, it's sort of reinvented itself when the, the federal government began the direct loan program and loan money directly, not to the banks. Sally May then got heavily invested in, in private loans. So there's a, there's a private loan market out there. Outstanding private loan debts are about 1.4 trillion. You could tack another hundred billion on there; it'd be 1.5 trillion. That's Sally May's private loans. Well, aren't they some kind of a, like a hybrid monster? Then they're not quite public; they're not quite private. What are they? Yeah, they are, Jim. You know, Congress ought to hold hearings and look into what all these so-called nonprofits are doing. Sally May, for sure. Uh, the last figures we saw on their CEO salary been a few years ago, but it was just outrageous. The student loan guarantee agencies, uh, that's another racket. The Century Foundation did a report on them. It's Educational Credit Management Corporation is the party that sues these student loan borrowers. Yeah, now hold on a second. Uh, uh, would you call those a fiduciary for the Department of Education? Yeah. They, they, and explain to the listeners what a fiduciary is. Well, these are nonprofit corporations that are fiduciaries of the, of the federal government, and their job is to manage the student loan portfolio, try to keep people uh, out of default, and then collect on behalf of the federal government all these defaulted loans. In other words, they're responsible for the action, and they're also the enforcers. Yeah, they are. And here's a fact that no one's really commented on much, but this Century Foundation report said that four of these student loan guarantee agencies had unrestricted assets of a billion dollars or more. So you, you might ask yourself, how can a nonprofit corporation, a fiduciary of the U.S. Department of Education, accumulate a billion bucks? We don't know how much their CEOs is making their senior staff. There was a report on that a few years ago that the CEO was making more than a million dollars a year. But that's old data. It's probably higher than that. Well, there's also the uh, interesting situation that the Department of Education executives have been paying themselves bonuses for generating loans at a great rate. And in fact, they have a kind of a rating system for themselves that is kind of a, a self-evaluation uh, racket. So they give themselves high evaluations for doing great work and generating loans, and then they pay themselves like uh, $70,000 bonuses. That's exactly right. And you know, there wasn't nearly the outcry there should have been over that. That, that came to light uh, earlier this year. Now, James Runcie was the head of DOE's Student Loan Management Division, and he got bonuses. Uh, there was an interesting article that looked into all of that, and a number of them got bonuses. They rated themselves, and they paid out bonuses up to $70,000. That's never been explained. It's never been justified. It's just outrageous. And then when Mr. Runcie was asked to come testify before Congress, he resigned and didn't didn't come forward to explain what he's doing. Well, how does resigning uh, exempt you from answering a subpoena to the to Congress? You're still a citizen who needs to answer to Congress. Yeah, I I agree. 
I don't know why that wasn't looked into more seriously. It, it's just, it's like a smoking gun. I mean, that's a good question. Why didn't they call him in? Why, they, why didn't they insist? Why haven't they looked into these student loan guarantee agencies? You know, Congress doesn't want to look into this because the higher education industry and the, the for-profit industry in particular basically owns Congress. That's been documented. It's a guy who writes for the Atlantic. I'm blanking on his name right now. So they get campaign contributions from all these entities, and they just won't look at it. It's a huge domestic crisis, and Congress just won't look at it. They are basically in bed with the for-profit college industry. The companies that we have described as fiduciaries who manage the portfolios and act as collection agents for the Department of Education seem to behave with particular cruelty and even lawlessness. In one case you cite, they continue to garnish the wages of a poor person working at Starbucks after a court ruled that they couldn't do that and had to desist. And they continued doing it for months and months, and then they would periodically repay the person all of the garnished wages and then do it again, like in a wash, rinse, repeat cycle. How do they get away with that? Uh, is there no such thing as contempt of court? This was a court-ordered thing. Yeah, Jim, that's the, the Bruner Haltman case out of Texas. And, and you got it exactly right. This woman, she only owed about $5,000. And she defaulted. She was working at Starbucks. And she filed bankruptcy. Under the bankruptcy code, a person who files bankruptcy automatically stops all collection activities. It's called the automatic stay provision. So... ECMC, Educational Credit Management Corporation, was legally required to stop collection. Well, it just didn't stop. Uh, and it garnished her wages over 30 times. And then her, her attorney would call and say, hey, you know, you can't do this. They would reimburse her and then they would do it again. So her attorney sued them for violating the automatic stay order. And the, the bankruptcy judge, the federal judge, was outraged by it. But I don't think he punished them severely enough. He penalized them. It was a total of $75,000 penalty placed on them. It was like $2,000 an infraction. That's not nearly enough for an outfit that has a billion dollars in assets to get its attention. Yeah, that's sort of the cost of doing business. Yeah, the judge should have slapped a million bucks on them. So that's the most outrageous thing I've, I've seen them do. And they were penalized, but not enough. And then in a case back in uh, New York, the Hahn case, ECMC went after uh, a debtor, and that debt had been discharged in bankruptcy. It's not only the fact that they're doing it, but then the cost of calling them to account is so high. That case back east, ECMC appealed it all the way to the Second Circuit. Well, most people can't afford the cost of bringing them to account. And in the Bruner Haltman case, it was years after they started garnishing her wages that she finally got justice. Well, what was the uh, disposition of that case finally? And not Bruner Halter, the the, the Hahn case. Yeah, they Hahn lost case. both of them. They lost both of them, and uh, there was a penalty assessed in that case. I've forgotten what it is. And, and in both cases, the courts spelled out this is you know this is not only wrong, but it's it's outrageous. Are there no criminal provisions for dealing with this for the people who actually are responsible for doing these things? Jim, I don't know of any criminal cases that have been brought against them. 
Well, isn't it basically criminal behavior to steal money from someone after a court has ruled that, that you're not allowed to garnish their wages anymore? The, the court in the Han case didn't call it criminal activity. It, it just a, a, a basic disregard of the law and of the, the court order discharging the debt. I don't know of any criminal charges that have been brought. I, I do know that uh, the state attorney generals around the country, much more aggressive than the federal government, have been bringing actions against these outfits under state consumer protection laws. That's the most aggressive activity. Uh, what are some notable cases uh, under that? Uh, the California Attorney General's Office got a judgment against Corinthian colleges of uh, more than a billion dollars. But Corinthian colleges is in bankruptcy, so that won't be collected. That, that's the, the largest assessment against, uh, that, that's the for-profit colleges for misrepresenting, for misrepresentation and fraud, basically. While we're on the subject, could you explain to the listeners exactly what a for-profit college is and, and make a distinction, uh, perhaps, between something like the University of Phoenix and Harvard? Because Harvard's a private corporation. I mean, uh, are, they, are they a nonprofit or are they allowed to make a profit? They, they are nonprofit private institutions. So there's, there's a whole range of, of public universities that are private institutions, Harvard, Yale, all of those. That's one segment of the higher education industry. There's the public institutions, the state universities. There are the private institutions like Harvard and all these small liberal arts colleges. And then there is the for-profit sector. And those are uh, institutions that are in the business of education to make money. And they, you can divide them into two groups. Some of them are publicly held corporations and you can buy stock in them. And others are privately held and uh, some of them are held by hedge funds. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they're, they're in the business to make profit. Now, University of Phoenix, good example. That was a publicly traded corporation. And their stock at one time was up at almost $90 a share. So it's a very profitable business. Very, very profitable. And a lot of these outfits... You know, they don't really have campuses uh, in the normal sense. They're, a lot of them are kind of like correspondence schools in a way, maybe using the Internet, but still the basic idea of a correspondence school, right? Yeah, yeah. Most of their instruction is online. Because, you know, when I was a kid, they gave you matchbooks when you uh, bought a pack of cigarettes, right? Mm-hmm. And on the cover of the matchbook was, uh, you know, a come on that said, draw this pirate so that you get into a, quote, art school. Which was a correspondence course, of course. A lot of these for-profit outfits seem sort of like the draw this pirate school of drawing. Yeah. It's a, a very diverse industry, and it includes trade schools like barber colleges and beautician uh, colleges, really the very low end. Uh, and they charge, most of them overcharge for vocational and technical training. The people could get at the community college at a very, very reasonable price. So University of Phoenix, just an example of, of its morphing into another kind of entity. It was, it was traded on the stock exchange, and then a group of uh, equity funds uh, bought them out. And the, the leader of those equity funds was uh, the guy, Martin, I can't think of his last name right now. He was the campaign manager for the Obama administration. And they came in, and, and so it's now no longer a publicly held corporation. It's owned by a 
a group of, uh, of equity funds. They're in the business to make money. Has uh, the University of Phoenix, which may be more, one of the more egregious outfits out there, have they been hurt at all by the controversy around the college loan uh, racket? They have in the sense that their uh, their student enrollment has really dropped, dropped, dropped significantly. I haven't looked lately, but as of a couple of years ago, it had dropped by more than half. And their stock, when they were bought out, it plummeted down to about nine dollars a share. So the the so called customer base uh, is recognizing that it may be a low value deal to go there. Yeah, and there's another aspect of that too, Jim. The the public universities started competing with the for-profit universities in the online market, like the University of Southern New Hampshire. You might see their ads on television. Arizona State. Uh, I taught at University of North Texas for a while. We transformed our master's degree program into an online program. So when students began to have public university alternatives, they switched because public universities, were, they were doing online programs, but they were doing them cheaper. And, and I think that's what's hurt these uh, online for-profit industries a lot, was the competition from the, from the public universities. Well, in the uh, public and let's call them legit colleges and universities, there's also been an interesting inflation of administrative non-faculty staff and especially of the salaries of these people, and especially in the kind of uh, dubious categories like uh, diversity deans. It seems to me that's a direct result of the just amount of cash that's sloshing around in this racket. Yeah, the student loan program has, has fueled this inflated tuition cost in all, all across the board. Uh, the universities charge more, the students pay more, they just they just borrow more money, and now they're being asked to make the payments out over 20 or 25 years. Yeah, that's another aspect of all of this, and I see this in the public sector. I've, I've taught 25 years for public institutions. The growth of, of, of administrative positions, and they're well-paid administrative positions. They, you know, generally, they make more than the faculty. There's you know, vice presidents for diversity. Uh, my university is is seeking to hire an executive director of student success. We have people in charge of keeping track of uh, statistics under the Federal Clery Act. There's just a huge proliferation of administrative positions. And at the top, they make a ton of money. There's been a lot of criticism of the, the salaries of the executive level administrators. California in particular, it's just, it's just, Unbelievable. Yeah, there are a number of interesting kind of consequences of that and, and offshoots of it. One is the, the interesting apparent to fact that colleges are more and more turning into kind of resorts, you know, with, with gourmet dining, climbing walls, all kinds of strange new recreational activities. Yeah. And it's the, it's the oddest thing. Now, I live just a couple of blocks from Louisiana State University. They just put in a, what they call a water feature. <laughs> a water slide park? It's not a water slide park. It's a big. It's a big pool, and it's it's shaped like the letters LSU. Well, what the hell are they are they doing that for? Stadiums, all that stuff, and it, it is sort of a an arms race for student comfort. Uh, the student dormitories are are more and more opulent, 
But students are paying for all of that. And of course, a lot of it's outsourced. The, the, the bookstore at LSU is a couple of blocks from me. That's operated by uh, Barnes & Noble. And so they charge students more. Students expect more, but students are borrowing money to pay for it. A lot of this, shall we say, fraudulent loan activity has been directed at racial minorities who are, who are scammed especially by all sorts of for-profit educational outfits. And, and their hardship has been out of scale to the hardship of uh, other groups in the country. Talk about that a little. Yeah. You know, the for-profits have sold themselves as providers of education to disadvantaged uh, Americans, uh, minorities, first-generation college people. And they say, you know, we, we have a lot of working students. Uh, online courses are convenient for them. And the public sector is not serving that population. Well, the public sector is serving it now, so that's not true. But, you know, basically they're admitting that their, their student clientele are, you know, they have a higher percentage of minority students, higher percentage of people that are first-generation college goers. And they're not sophisticated people. And they have been the victims of, of high-pressure recruitment activities. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, that Senate report a few years ago showed that some for-profit colleges had a bigger budget for recruiting than they did for instruction. When, when you're recruited into something like that, you're recruited into a loan as much as you're recruited into a school. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of these people don't even realize what, that they're, they're borrowing money. They, they sign the documents. And, you know, the money goes often goes straight to the, the college, so they don't even see it. Their Pell Grant money, their student loan money, and they're just sort of vaguely aware that they, they have any debt. They don't even know what the interest rate uh, is, and then they find out later. The New York Times did a, a report a few years ago on a, a beautician school in New York City, recruited a bunch of uh, Hispanic, uh, Spanish-speaking women, didn't speak English, and they didn't know that they had had borrowed money until their income tax refunds were, were being garnished. Well, this I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but th- this would seem to get back to the, the definition of what racketeering is. You know, it's a, a way of getting money dishonestly. Yeah. It's just fundamentally yeah. dishonest. It is. It's fundamentally dishonest. It's, it, it's, it's a racket. And it's so blatant. And now at least these, the state attorney general's have gotten involved and are more aggressive. We're, we're, we're beginning to see what's going on. But, you know, the fact that that Congress won't even look at this is is just outrageous. And it's because these for profits are making campaign contributions to these people and their lobbyists are active in, in D.C. It's almost medieval in terms of what's happening to a very vulnerable population of Americans. Well, uh, define what you mean by medieval. You mean cruel? You know, it's more like it ought to be a crime. I don't know of anybody. Well, there have been a few people who have been prosecutors outfit out in California. You know, we're really creating a class of people who are always in debt and who are being exploited by an industry. And they don't have any legal rights. It's, it's almost like they're serfs. Now, one of the things the for-profits have done is in, in that massive paperwork that those people sign, including their student loans, 
they sign an agreement not to sue. They have to arbitrate if they have a fraud claim. That's a major reason why these these outfits haven't been brought to account. Uh, the students can't sue them. And there was a case out of California that a court, to its credit, ruled that the arbitration clause violated public policy and it wouldn't be enforced. But these these poor people in California that had been defrauded by a college, it was a medical tech program of some sort, they sued, the college said, no, you have to arbitrate. And the court said, no, they don't have to arbitrate. The, the agreement said you have to arbitrate in Indiana. So that's just outrageous. So, so they don't have the legal right to sue because they've signed these arbitration agreements. There's no statute of limitations on federal loans. They can go after you anytime, 25, 30 years later. Unlike other consumer debt, it's very difficult to discharge in bankruptcy. So they just sort of become lifetime indentured servants that they're making payments on loans that are growing. Uh, the balance is growing month by month. They can't get out of it. Well, you you say that uh, you know a lot of these people are are turned into serfs, but it, it, it's more than that. Their lives are actually being destroyed. You've indicated in your book that there's a correlation between the rise in, in the suicide rate among certain groups of people that's connected with the college loan racket. Yeah, the student loan racket. It's the right word for it. Forty million, forty-five million people are indebted. And by the way, 3,000 a day going into uh, default. Yes. Last year, 1.2 million in one year went into default. That's the rate of 3,000 people a day. You're right. Their lives are destroyed. Their credit is destroyed. They can't buy homes. Uh, They can't borrow money for legitimate educational experiences because they defaulted on their loans. Borrowing money for post-secondary education turned out not, not to help them. It destroyed them. And many of the victims of the college loan racket are actually middle-aged people who went back to grad school late in the game because they thought in one way or another it would improve their financial condition, you know, to get a master's degree. And then, uh, you know, a few years go by and they get into trouble with repayment and all of a sudden, you know, they're 65 years old and they find that their social security checks are being garnished when they they can't uh, make their payments. Yeah. I've hammered away on my blog about the social security garnishment issue. In the big scheme of things, it's not that many people. Uh, the General County Office did a good report on this last year. 170,000 people had their social security checks garnished. And the amount collected was was just a, a pittance. And, and the GAO said that most of the money that's being collected doesn't pay down their debt. It's It's interest and penalties. And that's just just outrageous. Congress could change that. They could pass a law to stop the garnishment of Social Security checks. It's harassment of elderly people. Well, they could pass a law that changed the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005, which was, if I understand it right, the uh, law that established college loans as being especially non-dischargeable. That is, you know, a loan that that bankruptcy could not get you out of. Is is that true that that really starts in 2005 with that law? That was an important development. The most important thing in the 2005, they called it the Bankruptcy Reform Act, was they put private loans in the same category as federal loans under the bankruptcy code. So if you take out a loan from Wells Fargo, you're under the undue hardship standard just 
as if you had taken out a loan from the federal government. So it's harder to discharge. Yeah. In fact, it's just they're just as hard to discharge as the federal loans because the banking industry got that uh, that passed. And, and what's the whole point of discharging a, a loan under bankruptcy and under the American law system? I mean, how, how did that evolve? Well, this is the heart of it, Jim. I, from the very beginning, I said the only way out of this huge disaster is to give people reasonable access to the bankruptcy courts. That is the only way. Back in the 70s, originally when the federal student loan program was initiated, there was no impediment to bankruptcy, to filing bankruptcy and discharging your loan. Then there, the Congress became concerned that people were graduating from college and on the verge of lucrative careers and then just walking over to the bankruptcy court. At first, they said you can't discharge your loan within five years of, of beginning repayment unless you can show undue hardship. Then they went to seven years, and then they said any time. The undue hardship rule applies any time in your entire lifetime. And then in 2005, they said, and, and by the way, that also applies to private loans. So it's the undue hardship rule in the bankruptcy law that is keeping people from filing bankruptcy. Now, I've watched that very closely, and I've been involved with people who have, have challenged that in the bankruptcy courts. I know a lot about that. The bankruptcy courts are beginning to become more compassionate. They're beginning to realize that these people need a way out. The bankruptcy is uh, it's in the U.S. Constitution. It's a constitutionally recognized system. The Bankruptcy courts are federal courts, and consumer debts can be discharged, you know, credit card debt, all that sort of thing. People take a, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and their loans are discharged. But to discharge your student loans, you have to file a lawsuit in bankruptcy courts called an adversary proceeding. So you, you file a lawsuit against Educational Credit Management Corporation or the U.S. Department of Education, whoever holds the debt. And then you have to show in court, the burden is on the debtor, that repayment of the loan is a, constitutes an undue hardship. And you better have a good lawyer because the Department of Education and the collecting agent for them have armies of lawyers. Yeah, they do. This is an important aspect of this whole problem. It's really the heart of the problem. Uh, yeah, of course, people who, who are in bankruptcy court don't have the money to pay attorneys. And unfortunately, the bankruptcy bar doesn't understand how the undue hardship rule works, and, and they will tell people it's impossible. It's not impossible, but it sure helps to have a good attorney. And let me just tell you about a, it's a, it's an article, a law review article written by Jason Uliano. He looked at this, very interesting findings. He looked at all the bankruptcies that were filed in 2007 determined that nearly a quarter of a million people filed for bankruptcy in 2007 who had student loan debt, but only a few hundred of them even tried to discharge it. So they're, they're so convinced that it's impossible, they don't have the money to hire an attorney for an adversary proceeding, so that they, they don't even try. He said that if they had tried under the the case law of that time, he said he thought 40% of them could get at least a partial discharge. I think that figure's higher now because I think the courts, one by one, they're beginning to realize that these people need relief. The bankruptcy judges, their job is to give 
honest but unfortunate debtors. That's the phrase you always see. Honest but unfortunate debtors. A fresh start. That's the whole purpose of bankruptcy. A fresh start. Some courts are now sort of waking up to their responsibility. Hey, if I'm, uh, that's my job is to give people a fresh start. And they're beginning to interpret the undue hardship rule more compassionately. I think the, it's the federal courts are the only way out of this. Uh, uh, Congress will never fix this because of the lobbyists. But if the federal courts redefine undue hardship and the bankruptcy courts start looking at these people, at the, at the reality of what's happened to them, things are going to change. And if the pathway to bankruptcy was, was eased, there'd be millions of people in bankruptcy. There's a whole other angle to this uh, crisis, too, which is that th- this massive amount of loans is being repackaged as commercial securities, th- that is, as bonds, just like the janky mortgages that uh, blew up in 2007, 8, and 9. Talk about that a little bit and how that's working out. The packaged uh, student loans are called SLABs, Student Loan Asset Backed Securities. And I don't know a whole lot about that. I, I think the majority of those loans that got packaged into slabs were the, uh, the loans under the old system where the banks issued the loans and the federal government guaranteed them. But they, there have been a lot of those loans packaged up. It's becoming increasingly apparent, uh, apparent that a lot of those are bad loans. Uh, Moody's issued an alert about those uh, a year or so ago. The default rates are are going up. So yeah, that's that's a problem. Personally, I don't give a damn what happens to the people who bought those slabs. Yeah, well, let me just explain how this uh, loan repackaging works for the listeners in case they, they don't quite understand it. You know, you take a bunch of loans, uh, college loans, just as 10 years ago, they took a bunch of mortgages. They put them into a giant bond that's made of hundreds or thousands of mortgages, and they mix them up into sort of slices called tranches and they sell them off and they they have you know different sort of ratings but in fact they tend to be treated as if they're all good loans but in fact a lot of the tranches of these uh bundles end up being you know loans that no payments are being made on and the whole point of the bond is to get basically a bundle of revenue streams and if the re- revenue streams are actually not there, if they're not if they're not performing, as they say in the banking racket, then uh, the bond itself becomes worthless. So that's sort of what's going on there. And and you have averred in your own book to the deeper trouble that this might pose for the banking system itself. That's exactly what's going on. I, I, I always refer people to the movie The Big Short. And I thought The Big Short explained in a very entertaining way how the the mortgage crisis developed. And it's the same thing. Uh, It's a bubble, like the housing crisis is a bubble. The similarities, I think there are three similarities. You know, one, people are purchasing something that's overpriced. People are borrowing money to buy homes that were overpriced, and people are borrowing more than they should for college education. And two, the Government regulators who should be looking out after this didn't do it. The regulation of the, the mortgage industry was, you know, was lax. The, the bond companies rated all these asset-backed securities as investment-grade when they weren't. 
in the loan market, the, the Department of Education is lying about the default rates. It's a whole accounting fraud thing. And, well, and, and the critics of this say, well, you know, you can't really compare them. The, the amount of, of money that was lost in the mortgage crisis is bigger than the student loan crisis. But they're not right about it. It's just as bad as the mortgage crisis. And there are more people whose lives have been ruined by the student loan crisis than the, the housing crisis. I wrote a little blog about that. It was about 8 million homes went into foreclosure or deeds in lieu of, of foreclosure. Uh, but there's over 20, 25 million people who aren't paying back their student loans. Yeah, well, in, in the first case of the, the mortgage crisis, the collateral was the house. In the case of the student loan crisis, the collateral is your life. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And at least if you got scammed in, in the mortgage meltdown, you could take bankruptcy. Yeah, or you could mail your keys, you know, you could do the jingle mail thing with your the keys to your house and send them to the bank and just walk away. Yeah, yeah, and if they went after you, you, you could discharge that mortgage then in bankruptcy. The huge crime about all of this, and I don't think that's too strong a word, is that you put people into these worthless college experiences, they're not paying off for them, and we won't let them discharge someone in bankruptcy, and we won't regulate the goddamn for-profit industry. Which, which should be shut down completely. Yeah, that was the feeling I got from your book. I want to ask you one final question. It seems that this racket is pretty clearly doomed to collapse under the weight of its own fraud, you know, as reflected, for example, in what we just talked about, about, you know, the loans being repackaged into worthless bonds. And when it does, one can easily imagine a, a great deal of collateral damage for the colleges and universities themselves, including many of the formerly legit colleges and universities who have become dependent on this stream of revenue that's generated through fraud. It seems to me that many colleges are going to either contract significantly or go out of business. What do you think about that? You know, you're absolutely right. Moody's put a report out a couple of years ago saying that, uh, college closures would tick up slightly as a result of this. Completely understated it. Here are the first casualties that are going to show up. Private, small, undistinguished private liberal arts colleges. All those little colleges that were established, and a lot of them in New England and the upper Midwest, uh, Catholic schools, uh, Protestant schools, nonprofit liberal arts colleges. They're going down. And, and I think every one of them that has a student enrollment of a thousand students or less, they're going down and they're going down faster and faster. I'd say in five years, that industry is going to be just a shadow of its former self. Now, Harvard's going to be fine. It has a $35 billion endowment, but uh, St. Joseph's College in Indiana closed last year. Dowling University closed. There's the St. Catharines in Kentucky that closed. Little School in Alabama. Those are going down. And what happened to those poor institutions, and I feel sorry for them. I, I think the, the whole idea of a small liberal arts college that served local people, a lot of them were Catholic schools that served Catholic veterans coming back after World War II. I hate to see them go, but they're going. And what happened, they started ratcheting up their tuition up to high 30s, $40,000 a year. These little schools, they're not worth 40000 a year. And they've now admitted that, in fact, they're discounting. 
what they're actually charging is 20000 a year. One institution, I believe it was in Alabama, just admitted it, and they slashed their intuition in half. But the, the whole pricing structure got screwed up, and families realized, oh, it's not, it's not worth 35000 a year or whatever to go to St. Joseph's College. They're the number one, in terms of the institutional casualties, they're number one. And then the for-profits, in spite of all the graft and corruption and the support from Congress, they're going to go down too because people are finally waking up that it's just, it's insane to borrow money to attend these for-profits. Yeah, for a correspondence course. Yeah, it's just insane. Uh, Let me slip one more final question in here. Uh, Is the new head of the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, doing anything at all to clean this up? Now, Jim, this is like a topic for another podcast. Uh, so I'll just say briefly, Betsy DeVos is a disaster. I am shocked by it. I, you know, I do not have a dog in the fight, all this animosity between the various political factions. But I thought very naively, I was completely wrong. I thought, well, she doesn't, she knows nothing about higher education. Maybe that's good. She'll come in and she'll see what a disaster this is. Yeah, she'll see through it to see what the racket is. But she's not doing that. And several people have said basically she's she's taking her directions from the for-profits. I tell you, a guy who's written very profoundly about this is Steve Rode, has a blog site called the Get Out of Debt Guy. Uh, how do you spell his name? It's uh, Rode, R-H-O-D-E. Oh, thank you. And his, his, in fact, he's got one today about her intervention in a for-profit law school is just devastating. Oh, she's just awful. You know what? I'm not even going to go into it. But <laughs> okay. Well, we're uh, running close to the end of this hour, and um, I wanted to tell listeners who I've been talking to. You are Richard Fossey, F-O-S-S-E-Y. You're a professor at the uh, – which school is that in Louisiana? The University of Louisiana at, at Lafayette. Uh-huh. And you're a law professor, is that correct? I, no, I, I teach law courses to uh, in the College of Education to people preparing to be school administrators and college administrators. Okay. You're the author of a new book that is called The Student Loan Catastrophe, Postcards from the Rubble. That's available on Amazon, I believe? It is. The Student Loan Catastrophe by Richard Fossey. You have a blog. Tell us what that is and where to find it. The blog is uh, it's called Condemned to Debt. That's all one word, condemntodebt.org. Okay, great. Uh, how often do you put out a, a new blog? About twice a week. I, I just past week, I, I posted my 500th blog essay. Okay, well, we'll look forward to checking in with that and maybe checking in with you again as this crisis develops because I don't think it's over. I don't think the this, this smoke has begun to uh, even been been seen from this. It's been a pleasure, although it's kind of a harrowing conversation. And I wish good luck to all those unfortunate people out there who have been, uh, you know, stuck in this racket and stung by it. So thanks a lot, Richard Fossey. We will ride again. Okay. It's been a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Bye-bye.